Welcome to Common Thread. We hope you find these lessons helpful, but also we'd like to get to know you. If you go to our website slash newcomer, we'll send you an email, some things to read about the community, and an invitation to a personal chat. If you're here in Raleigh, maybe face-to-face. If not, on Zoom. We hope you will. CommonThreadChurch.org slash newcomer. Okay, here's the lesson. Lesson when the title of an article uh, caught my eye. America has a scorn problem. So you will have noticed that that word has featured prominently in this lesson. It's kind of helped the organ, helped me organize the structure of the lesson. And as we've said uh, so far already, our religion has very little good to say about scorn. Nothing good. <laughs> but even so, we're going to see today our religion has unwittingly been a sponsor of scorn. So today, digging into our own history, uh, one way that we lost our way and one way that we can find our way again. Now, if you missed the early parts of this lesson, here's just a real quick recap. Our biggest problem we've said in our city, in our neighborhoods, even in our families, is the bitter division between us, the scorn that we have one for another. Because all of our other biggest problems are too big to work on with just us or our group. They're big enough now, our problems, that we have to work collectively, we have to work together. And right now, we barely talk, let alone work constructively to solve our problems. So we've got to deal with this climate thing because we have grandkids. Well, we will have grandkids. And we have to deal with rising inequity. It's going to keep charging the problems that it charges. We have to deal with diminishing access to opportunities. But those problems are like those Russian dolls, you know, that one fits inside of another, fits inside of another. Our biggest problem shapes all of those other problems. Our division from one another problem, problem shapes all the other problems that nest inside of it. Our scorn for one another forms all of these other issues. So it's a lesson on repairing what is broken in your neighborhood, in your family, but in our city, in our nation, ultimately. We work on that largest nesting doll, the bitter division, the scorn between us. Now, I have said a couple of times in this lesson that we have become a significantly less politically diverse uh, community since 2015. And so I know when I'm speaking that I am speaking to the majority left-leaning folks. So consequently, I am focusing on left-leaning blind spots. I'm not trying for fairness here. (laughs) I'm not trying for equal access. So my mostly lefty, mostly white friends know this. The left has finely tuned the art of scorn. As human beings do, the left latched on to some really important truths, true truths, critical truths. But scorn, doing what scorn does, narrowing our vision down to only focusing on that part of the truth. 
Scorn makes us stupid. That was the title the day that we talked about, that narrowing down of our vision. Scorn makes us reductionist thinkers. Scorn makes us uncreative thinkers. Scorn makes us small picture thinkers, makes us big blind spot thinkers. Scorn makes it easy, very easy, to dismiss other people's perspectives because scorn insists that those people are just insert the insult. They're just ignorant, or they're just backward, or they're just hard-hearted, or they're just uncompassionate. They will never change. They are bigots. They are fascists. They are racists, which again makes it much easier to dismiss any truth except the one onto which we have latched. It's just what scorn does, and the left has finely tuned that art. Now, if I was speaking to right-leaning people, plenty of stuff to say over there. But for the left, for a good long time, that scorn strategy seemed to work. It seemed like shaming other people, the right, was bringing about change. But in reality, all it did was just shame the right into being quiet. All the while internalizing all of that shaming, all the while resenting all of that disrespect, all the while begrudging all of that public embarrassment, the right got quiet. Didn't go away, just got quiet. All it took was the right galvanizing moment. All it took was a leader without a moral center and let's destroy democracy. Now, if we were going to be fair, black and brown people and gay and lesbian people and poor and uneducated people, lots and lots of people have been demeaned and have been disrespected and have been diminished for a long, long time. And if we were going to play the game tit for tat, if we were going to play the game turnabout's fair play, well then sure, it's time for a little bit of shoe on the other foot. But tit for tat and turnabout's fair play, these are dumb games to play because they didn't change things or solve things in the past and they're not going to change things or solve things in the future. So making space for the other is probably the game that's going to yield the best return on the investment of our energies. It is much more emotionally demanding, it is, But the alternative is far more emotionally demanding, far more difficult for a much longer time, and far more painful. We can't solve our problems without together, without making space for the other. And we are spiritual people. We are on a spiritual journey. And repairing the world, it's kind of our thing. It's our mandate. It's kind of a non-negotiable for us. So let's think together about making space for the other. All right, here are the questions that we'll be talking about after the lesson. We're going to do that in the room. We hope you'll join us on Zoom to do the discussion there as well. You're going to hear a lot of religious history today, but as you're doing that, I would encourage you to be thinking about a time or an experience that you have had in which you did not have to earn your way in order to be accepted. Now, you'll get bonus points if that experience happened not in your family. (laughs) 
So and if you can't think of one of those stories, then think about a time when the opposite happened, a time that you did have to earn your way before you could be accepted. And for the second one, let's be imagining together how the grace mindset that you're going to hear me describe today, uh, how that might change the equation. Hopefully, you'll have a story or a memory to draw from for that one as well. Okay, so be thinking as the uh, lesson goes on about the questions we'll talk about afterwards. All right, we've seen in this lesson already, scorn is sneaky. It's all, always waiting in the wings there, always ready to come in and somewhat soften the edge of our pain. Well, today I want to talk about another reason why it is so sneaky, why it's always there in the wings. And we're going to talk about a Western culture reason, in fact, a Western Christianity culture reason. And I know you've got to hate that looking at our religion's part because we are a Christian community, how we have participated in creating the problem. Ugh, who likes that? But it is how we repair the world. It is why we practice self-examination. So today, let's explore a term that you have probably heard several times, but maybe without much historical context. Let's talk about the Protestant work ethic. And let's start with this guy. Uh, John Calvin. Now there is good reason why we talk so much about the stories we tell ourselves. Today, how profoundly a very simple story changed the course of our nation. Calvin is the one who told this story. Now only a few people took that story up and championed it, just a handful of people, but nonetheless that story became an unconsciously held story for most Americans because the Puritans, because Massachusetts Bay Colony, because the right people in the right place at the right time, though small in number, had an outsized impact on the American psyche. So here's how it happened. Calvin told the story, uh, the one I'm going to tell you in a minute, he told it in Zurich. Now, a handful of people carried that story, and they went to Holland first, then they went to England, and then during a time of expansion, uh, high adventure, creating new lives in a new world, the Puritans, who were sick of their religion being disrespected by the Church of England, carried Calvin's story to the new world, landed on Plymouth Rock, where the Massachusetts uh, Bay Colony became a place to plant the seed of the story, and now that seed has grown into uh, one of the dominant themes in the American psyche. Here's the story that Calvin told. In his time, as happens frequently through history, the church had lost its way. It was a time of tumult and change and reform. And in many ways, they were reacting to how badly things were going, and in particular, how badly organized religion was going. And so they set out to bring about reform the Reformation. Now, this was partly a political movement. The Germans were gaining power and they were gaining wealth. And they resented the old structures of power and wealth, in particular the Catholic Church. So the Reformation was a really good way to stick it to Vatican City. It was also partly a spiritual reformation. You've probably heard of the indulgences scandal. If you've ever been to Europe, you've probably gone to see one of those big Gothic cathedrals. Odds are the cathedral that you have in your mind, if you went and saw one of them, was paid for by the indulgences scandal. 
Here's how that scandal went. The church had hoodwinked people into paying money to get forgiven for any sin that they had committed. Now that is a plan. I don't know how we missed that. Because <laughs> that's a money maker right there. <laughs> but when that wasn't raising enough money, if you've seen those cathedrals, they are big. <laughs> they convinced people to pay even more money to get the sins of their dead family members forgiven. Because your offering is going to get Uncle Frank out of purgatory onto the streets of gold. Don't you want that for Uncle Frank? So... It was pretty shameless exploitation. So the reformers were properly disgusted. And they looked up and not surprisingly concluded, you know what? I think we might have gotten our story wrong. (laughs) It's not that way. No, you don't earn God's grace. And you especially don't earn it with money. It's a free gift. You don't earn your salvation You don't earn your spot in heaven. It's all grace. It's all unmerited. It's all free. It just is. Nothing that we do either earns it or loses it. It just is. In our community, we say it this way. Forgiveness is to God as shine is to sun. Which, as a meaning-making narrative, can be very, very beautiful, very, very helpful. It can also be a little bit ugly and a little bit harmful. And here's how it got harmful. Once we rejected earning God's grace, and once we replaced it with grace is a free gift, marinate on that idea for a little while, and before long, sensible people begin to wonder, huh? If that grace, if that is a free gift, what about those bad people? Because you know they are bad. They are mean and they are selfish, criminals, villains. What about them? Did they just not get the free gift? Is that what happened? I guess they didn't. So, Calvin's story went, yes, grace is a free gift of God. But it's not really for everybody. (laughs) It's actually reserved for just some people. The elect people. The chosen people. You can see why I put sourpuss next to his name. (laughs) Probably reserved for us. Now, here's the thing. Marinate on that idea, just for some people for a little bit of more time, and before long, insensible people begin to also wonder, wait a minute, am I sure? Because if I'm honest with myself, sometimes I do bad stuff too. Kind of like those bad people doing their bad stuff. Me too. So, am I really one of the chosen ones? If only some are predestined to get this free gift. If only some are assured a spot in heaven, if everybody else is going to burn in hell for eternity, given that that's a lot that's going on at stake right here, just how sure am I? Sensible people asking sensible questions about a meeting-making narrative given to us by Calvin. So hold that in your mind for a minute. Grace is free. It's a gift. But it's not for everybody. 
And who knows, maybe not me. Now, second point before we put the two together. Remember what the reformers were doing. They were reimagining religion because it had lost its way so badly. Consequently, they were asking some core fundamental questions like, what actually is the spiritual life? And so, on a parallel path with that whole am I really sure part is another, let's just begin to reimagine what the spiritual life is part. And they determined that the spiritual life was really founded on three core principles. Three things that the spiritual life is about. Now in seminary, I heard them described as the three mandates, which is theology jargon. You do not need to know, but it is number one, the worship mandate. Love God with all of your heart, which is seek the inner light, seek the divine, live from that interior light. One, the worship mandate. Two, the redemption mandate. Go into the world and heal what is sick. Go into the world and fix what is broken. Make the world a better place. Be repairers of the world. The redemption mandate. Now, number three was a bit of a novel idea at the time. The creation mandate. Go into the world and make the world. Go into the world and finish what God started. Co-create the world. Which means plant crops. Which means build bridges and organize cities and start schools and teach kids to read and build roads and get the food to people and build houses and build hospitals and build governments. The creation mandate. And the great contribution of the reformers was to afford that third mandate the same status as the other two. Work, this meaning-making narrative, is a calling from God. Just like the other two are callings from God. Work is not just about making money. It also gives us purpose. It also has dignity. It also is doing what God made us to do. Just like clergy people who speak of their work as a calling... All of us now speak of our work as a calling. That's where the word vocation comes from. A calling from God. Okay. Now you got all the raw materials you need. You got those two thoughts in your head. We've got the background now to begin to think clearly about what the Protestant work ethic is. So part one, grave uncertainty about, grave uncertainty about one's standing before God. It might be that I am one of those ne'er-do-wells and I might not even know it. It might be that I am not predestined for heaven. I might be predestined to burn in hell forever. That is also an option. Part two, a broadened definition of what spiritual means. Yes, seeker of the inner light, worship mandate, check. Repairer of the uh, broken world, yes, redemption mandate, check. But new to the list, work, creating goods and services, also spiritual also part of the spiritual life. Meditate on that mix of ideas for a little while, and before long, sensible people are thinking, you know, it would not be a bad idea if for no other reason than my own psychological well-being, maybe also for the reason of my standing in the community, if I were to start to act like one of those people who are chosen. 
Because if I were to act like I was a seeker and finder of the interior light, where's the mandate? If I were to act like one of those repairers of the world, where I go out and fix what's broken, redemption mandate, and if I were to work my ass off, work really, really hard, I might demonstrate to myself and I might demonstrate to those around me, see, I've got what it takes. I am one of the chosen. Well, I don't know if I am. But I increase the likelihood that I might be (laughs) one of the chosen ones. Because, look at this. I am out there kicking it. I am doing, I bet I am. I bet I'm one of the chosen. So, marinate on that idea for a little while. And before long, sensible people need a new kind of economy that has new motivations built into it, that has new opportunities built into it, that has new incentives built into it. And before you long, we stop being feudalists and we start to become capitalists. We create an economy that has all the pieces in place and all the right incentives and all the right opportunities so we get to live out Calvin's story. We get to make meaning in our everyday life Living out, work is a calling from God. And that is the Protestant work ethic in a nutshell. So again, we don't earn our salvation. Nope, it's a free gift. But we might indicate our salvation because it's not for everybody. If we define ourselves to ourselves and define ourselves to other people by acting like people who are some of the chosen ones, are the elected ones, in essence, we start to look like a duck and we start to quack like a duck so that maybe we can be a duck. It was a seed that got planted in Zurich. Thank you, Calvin. It was a seedling that grew in Holland, then it grew in England. Thank you, Puritans. and became a full-blown tree when it got planted on Plymouth Rock at the Massachusetts Bay Colony and it imprinted the whole American psyche. Fast forward 500 years in Calvin's religious story. Nobody buys it. Well, there's a few. Our neighbors do. (laughs) (laughs) There are a few that buy Calvin's story, but most Americans don't believe any of that stuff. But most Americans do struggle with work-life balance. Most Americans need remedial help, resting, even sleeping. Most Americans work longer hours and vacation less and spend less time with those they love uh, than their counterparts in Europe or other developed nations do because most Americans carry some vestige of Calvin's story deep in their guts. If I work hard, I demonstrate to myself and I demonstrate to other people I'm one of the good ones. Most Americans carry some vestige of Calvin's story there in the guts. I define my core being by my work. And most Americans look up and look around and realize everybody else is doing that too. It just must be so. Now, again, most folks don't know about Calvin. They don't give two wits about Tulip. That's if you want to find out what Calvin Calvin was talking about that's five points of Calvinism they just know that mom and dad taught them about work and this is what it feels like 
And they know that mom and dad wanted them to succeed in America, and this is what it takes. And they know what their bosses expect, and they know what their coworkers are doing and how they're scrambling, and they know that we Americans are valuable if we work our asses off. Which is pretty ironic, making work one of the three core ways you know God favors you, because in the original story, way back when, God actually made work to be a punishment. <laughs> it, it wasn't how you got favor, it's how you got punished. <laughs> but nonetheless, here we are, Americans. So when we lose our jobs, our identity gets assaulted much more than folks in other nations when they lose their jobs because we define ourselves and our worth and our value and our goodness by how hard we work. Now, all of that would be worthy of a lesson all by itself, understanding the unconscious drivers behind work-life imbalance. But this is a lesson on making space for the other. So what's the connection? Well, it's this. Despite our religion's founding ethic of grace, once our story started telling us that we needed to demonstrate our experience of grace, then it stopped being about grace, which was very subtle, very sneaky, very tricky. But a story about unearned grace and unmerited favor tells you you don't have to do anything to be loved or to be accepted or to belong. And that story got subtly undercut by Calvin trying to make meaning. So that story became the American story after that subtle little shift. And now everybody who's an American knows, dude, you got to earn it. You got to. If you want favor, if you want to belong, you got to earn it. People who don't give two wits about God's favor or earning a place in heaven, still, they all know. you got to earn it. That's American. It started as a religious story. Well, look at me. I must have God's blessing. First, look how hard I'm working. See, I must be one of the kind of people that God would have chosen. And look, I'm working harder than you, which demonstrates if anybody's going to get it, it's going to be me, not you. But second, when I do work that hard, look at all the money that I am making. God must be blessing me. And even more, I'm making more money than I can spend. So consequently, now I'm accumulating working capital. And what I could do with that money is I could start lending that money to other people so that they can start businesses and they can work themselves harder than their neighbor also, demonstrate their standing before God just like me. And even more than that, look around as more and more and more of us start doing that, demonstrating our favor before God. There is a lot more money sloshing around in the system than there used to be. A lot more goods and services that we get to consume than we ever used to have. And we never even dreamed that things could be this wealthy. More money in the system, more food for everybody to eat, more clothes for everybody to wear, more research into discovering more ways to do more good stuff that we can live better. God clearly is blessing us. 
we are clearly chosen must be our manifest destiny. Now let me quickly add, if I could choose when to be born, I would have chosen to be born into a capitalist world before a feudalist world. It's better. <laughs> it's very fashionable these days to bash capitalism because there's a whole lot about the system that is not working. There's a whole lot about the system. It purports to be fair. It is not fair. It purports to be a merit system. It is not a merit system. But that's not the point I'm making. The point I'm making is that our religious story is still in there driving us. And one of the things that it drives is scorn. Because shift, even unconsciously, from a grace story to a prove it story, earn it story, and something happens to us. Something happens inside of us. Hold on to a grace story, hold on to unearned, unmerited favor, and there breathes inside of us a deepening sense of gratitude, a deepening sense of compassion. I didn't earn this blessing. It was given to me. I didn't earn this body. I didn't earn this breath that I take. I didn't earn this health that I enjoy. I didn't earn this family that raised me. I didn't earn this education that was afforded me. I didn't earn this food that I ate, this care that I was given. I didn't earn being born into this nation or this economy. I didn't earn these roads or this economic engine that somebody planted out there in the 50s in RTP. It was a gift into which I was born. A grace story gives birth to gratitude. An earnest story does not. Also, a grace story gives birth to a charitable heart in people. If you grew up in church, you heard the word agape. That word is often translated love, but sometimes it is translated charity. But it's not charity in the sense of giving money to an organization that helps homeless people. It's much more comprehensive than that. Charity is the sense that we are all in this thing together. That our duty is to work for the good of all of us, not just some. That we are not finished until all, until the common good is enjoyed by every one of us. It's not just about me and mine. So if my kids go to a good school or have a warm and healthy meal or they walk in their neighborhoods and they are safe, I can't go to bed as though all is well if your kids do not enjoy the same things. As long as your kids don't have what my kids have, some part of me still has unfinished business. That is agape, that is charity. Some part of me is obligated to seek out ways that are here now small dual that I can participate in making right what is wrong, in healing what is broken. And a grace story gives birth to gratitude and a grace story gives birth to agape. It gives birth to we are in this thing together. An earnest story does not. Weaken our great grace story, as Calvin did, and we cultivate less mercy in our hearts. Weaken our grace story, and we cultivate less understanding of the other. 
weaken our grace story and we lose sight of humility, how them and us are really the same. We've just experienced different things. Weaken our grace story and it gets very easy to scorn those damn heartless bastards. But with a grace story, it becomes a whole lot easier to see that given the right conditions, there's plenty of damn, damn heartless bastard inside me too. Weaken our grace story, have to start proving our merit or just propping it up, less gratitude, less charity, less humility, less understanding, less compassion, less ability to see from the perspective of the other. Weaken our grace story and soon we are not caught in an inescapable network of mutuality. We are not tied in a single garment of destiny. Weaken our grace story and we devolve into us, the good people, and them, the heathen Satanists. Now again, my mostly left-leaning, mostly white friends, for most of us, this is pretty familiar territory when we apply it to black and brown people, and when we apply it to poor people, and when we apply it to gay and lesbian people. But it's much harder to imagine applying that same mindset when them, those heartless bastards, are gerrymandering our state so that we've got a 50-50 split of Republicans and Democrats, but we've got 11 Republican representatives and only three Democrats. Those damn bastards. It's much harder to apply that mindset when them are working year after year after year to defund public schools until they fail so that they can replace them with a for-profit system which will be good for them and not good for everybody else. Those heartless bastards. So, come on, Doug. They are the other. Look at what they're doing. And yes, there's plenty of unfairness going on. That's really true. Remember what I said when we uh, started out? That we latch on to a truth. And that truth that we latch on to is true. But without a grace story, our truth is the only truth that we see. Scorn makes us dumber makes us see less of the bigger picture. Here's what old people used to say when I was young. Now I'm the old people. It's my turn to say it. There but for divine grace goes me. That's what we say. Given the right experiences, given the right circumstances, I could be doing the same damn thing. And until we make that space inside of our hearts, we won't be able to talk together. We won't be able to work together. We won't be able to disagree together. We won't be able to debate together. We won't be able to do the give and take that is how we make progress in a society together. We'll just stagger along from one death match to the next, to the next, to the next. And the common good will suffer because we do. Making space for the other begins when we embrace grace. When we allow ourselves to experience it for ourselves. And then when we allow ourselves to make that same space in our hearts for the other. So Lindsay, 
Come on up. So I pray it will be so in dwelling divine. In our hearts, may we begin inside making space for the other. Now, quick footnote. This book, The Tyranny of Merit, it will give you a much bigger picture understanding of our society. It'll give you some context behind why today's lesson is so important. It'll help you understand why the folks in the, on the right are so pissed off. And only part of it is because folks on the left have been calling them ignorant, redneck racists. The systematic forces in our society that started with Calvin are still undercutting us today. And this will help you understand a bit about the social construct that goes on around that. All right, Lindsay, play that song for us again. Oh. Hey, you want that? Would let us prepare our offerings and as we say uh, all the time, uh, we all give online now. You can, the donate button is at the top of our website. If you go there now on your phone, you'll find it there. Lots of options, lots of ways to give. So if you're here in Raleigh, if you're far away, uh, we do invite you to take an ownership stake in the community because there is a thing that we say each week. There's always a good return when we invest in community. When we give our time and our energy, when we give our love and we give our dollars to the community, what the community does, the way this arrangement works, is take those resources, amplify them, and give them back to us in the form of an environment in which human beings thrive, in which we thrive, in which we grow, in which we develop, in which we flourish. So, like I said, we all give all online now. It does take dollars to run a community, so please go to our website. It's about as easy as, as it can be. And in a minute, we're going to dismiss those on the live stream. We're going to do what are you thinking here in the room, and we're going to invite you to do it there online. Uh, do the same what are you thinking that we do here. They've got the same questions. To get to the Zoom, the link is on the front page of our website. You could start going there right now. And if you've hung in this long, we're just going to tell you the password. We're not going to make it secret. It is, get ready, 1417, the first four numbers of our street address. So don't be a troll, 1417, and it's a great way to connect and to think more deeply about the lesson, to think more deeply about your life, and in the process, build a network of community. So hope you'll join in. All right, let's dismiss those folks. If you would, please put your hand on your heart and let's remember as we go that we are, every one of us, carriers of the indwelling divine. Love is in us. And joy and peace, patience, kindness, goodness, those things are in us because the breath of the divine is within us. And if you would, extend your other hand to our city. Let's look for opportunities to share what's already there inside of us with the people that we live and work and go to school with, looking for opportunities to repair and to heal our worlds. Amen. God bless you all. Uh, we are dismissed. You are dismissed. We are not dismissed. Hope you'll go over there and join on the Zoom. All right, those of us in the room, here's what we're going to do. We'd love to connect with you in real life. CommonThreadChurch.org slash newcomer. And if you'd like to take an ownership stake in the well-being of the community, we all contribute online. You'll find a donate button at the top of our website. See you next time.
We'd love to connect with you in real life. CommonThreadChurch.org slash newcomer. And if you